Hello, Stephen. Hi, Ernie. Happy July 3rd. How are you doing today? July 3rd is a good day. Technically, we're celebrating the 4th of July today. Um, I, I, I had learned that about this university that I'm working with on the East Coast. So ah. they've taken the day off, and they took yesterday yes. off. And ah. I was counting on it to, to be working, to do something for a faculty member I'm consulting with, and suddenly they cannot. I went, what? <laughs> Sadly, I'm at the point go. now. Uh, I'm at the point now where I'm no longer surprised that higher education is not working. <laughs> oh, it's it's just a much more elaborate bureaucracy than the one I was trying to describe to you about, you know, um, uh, elementary education as a entity. Yeah, it, it, it serves itself. I mean, people have positions that they like bureaucrats. They preserve to keep their position, not to serve the the needs of learning for their students or to protect the, the workers who are the teachers yeah. who really make the thing work. Right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was actually just had a conference call with a friend of mine uh, working in data science and research. I said, well, you know, one could make a case that the entire point of, of these institutions were created to protect the people who live there from yeah. having any relevance to the outside world. Um, unfortunately, Ernie, I have become so jaded and sarcastic in my viewpoint of that. Um, I, I, I agree. That, that's what I see. <laughs> That's what that's that's what I see. All right. See. All right. So I guess hey, uh, Stephen. <laughs> um, Bernie, uh, there's prophecy in what you just said that, in one sense, is really annoying. Um, <laughs> I have, I, Bernie, Bernie, I've been having conversations with God. Like, like when I sent that text message, like I said, I'm really annoyed with Ernie right now, but in a good way. I think angry I'm on my walk. Oh, angry, yes, angry with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm walking along, and suddenly an Ernie idea pops into my head, and I went, <laughs> "I'm going to have to act. I'm going to have to act on this." This man has prompted me to think, and I now feel compelled to have to act on it. Um, and this is coming. I, I just spent. I just had a walk with um, with a wonderful brother from our from our church. So he is. Uh, let's just say he's he's a Christian brother of color, and he and I okay. connect on many different many different points. We both fully embrace the transformative experience of Jesus Christ's love for everyone. We are in the we 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 have chosen to worship in the middle of a very conservative white church. We just didn't know how conservative and white it was until one of the white pastors blew up and, and just looked and said to the congregation in a recorded Zoom uh, sermon, um, I'm embarrassed to invite people of race to our church because I don't feel they would be welcomed here. Wow. Wow. Uh, so, that was, uh, no, I mean, of all the ways a white pastor could blow up, that's one of the better ones. That, that was and it was a good one. Yeah, he's a, he's yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. So anyway, Ernie, you can see you can see what's happening around me in my little world that I've for forty years tried to protect myself from having to speak up on behalf of colored people. <laughs> I've, I've I've just tried not to carry my color on the outside of myself. Uh -huh. I would just prefer to keep it on the Literally inside. Literally forty years. Literally forty years. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, roughly oh from the God. time that was seven, 17. Was totally Moses. It is. So, doggone you, Ernie, you keep making these Moses references, and that was the thing that made me angry on my walk. It interrupted my walk. <laughs> because I had to text it. I had to slow down my pace. <laughs> Ernie. Sometimes you got to slow down to get when you're supposed to go faster, Stephen. I, 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 I had to use that analogy. Oh, I was trying to use the analogy for um, Gloria helping her school district know that you can't just take your kids back to school and, and, and act like you can do things like you did the previous year. It just isn't going to happen. I said, your whole school district and the whole nation have to learn how to slow down before I can go fast again. And they're not willing to do that. They just want to get back to normal, but you can't. Mm-hmm. So, so slow it. So, so I'm using these very analogies that you're using to to, to talk with me right now. And yeah. the whole thing about Moses—that was the thing that stopped me when I recognized that for 40 years I have basically <laughs> been silent about. I learned a lot in the first five years of that 40-year window. But then I didn't have a I didn't have a resurgence until two years ago. And now I find myself in the middle of I just can't be quiet anymore. I I cannot in good conscience be silent on behalf of my race, but also because I feel God is compelling me to talk to people that I think are stupid and to find a heart and a compassion <laughs> to speak to them. This is how angry and frustrated I am, where I'm, I'm just looking at people and institutions, I'm, I'm, and I'm actually using the word, that's stupid. And that's not like me. Which I, that which I, been. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, is that uh, anger, cursing. Yeah, so the, well, this is good, because the Why? worst case scenario is that you approach this as a clinical thing, where you observe both white and black problems from outside. Yes, I am. And trying to tell us how to fix it, which is the traditional academic solution to everything. Right? But Uh, these conversations work best when we ourselves are grappling with all the problems we are trying to get other people to stop doing. Yes, I am not above or beyond the problems that I, I feel them. I experience yeah. them. I'm in it. Yeah, and that's, and that's actually the really extraordinary thing about your positioning in this, which we've talked about before, is that uh, you have not personally experienced the systemic racism issues, partly because of your color and your context or whatever. Yep. Um, but you emotionally identify with people. And this is actually the really uh, interesting thesis I'm working with here. Okay. Um, Which is that systemic racism is real and it's horrible and it needs to stop. Okay, that's just kind of the table stakes. The, it might also be a red herring Hmm. in the sense that it feels like there's something deeper. Just, and the, the argument is from analogy. A hundred years ago, we were told the problem was slavery. So we ended slavery. Ah, uh, yeah. And then 50 years ago, we were told the problem was, uh, no, the point is that we have legal 
barriers that are forcibly keeping black people down and segregated. So we got rid of those. And while those things were definitely improvements and uh, helped many individuals lead vastly better lives, there's still this nagging sense that whole populations are still as disenfranchised as ever. Yes. Annoyed. And the, the other thing that's really fascinating is uh, two of the people I've been thinking about, so I, just you know, to lay my cards on the table, I want to do an online uh, reconciliation circle or something like it, where we can have these conversations with a diverse group of people who share some common values, because I actually don't know how I'm supposed to think about this in, 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 in an effective manner. Oh, and as okay. we discussed, right, the, in both senses of the words discussed, I suppose, is that you know the 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 canonical let's call it the canonical conservative response is to downplay the issue, and the canonical liberal response is the world sucks, uh, therefore you should vote Democrat, and that's almost the extent of the solution that I've heard. And those are both understandable, but it's like I don't even know what the third way is. And it feels like there ought to be. And my hypothesis is that if we understood what is this, so there's, there's, there's two data points I'll give. One is that our pastor uh, on uh, last Monday, two weeks ago, um, uh, he was the one who did a, a sermon about inclusiveness on Pentecost Sunday. Which was, okay. you know, kind of a, a an unusually topical step for our church, and about Cornelius living in Samaria and how, you know, God really was hammering the point that everyone's equal and everyone belongs, no matter what our culture and our tradition or even our religion say. Um, so that was a, a positive thing. And then, um, the, <laughs> you mentioned, uh, 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 so. Uh, he uh, invited a Hispanic member of our congregation. I think we only have one. Okay. Uh, or, uh, or a very small number. Um, and invited him to do our uh, weekly prayer, which we have a time of praying. And so this Hispanic brother got up there and said, you know, I've been really disturbed by all the things that are happening, especially uh, with my African-American brothers and sisters, and really disturbed by the things that are happening in our country. And I pray for Trump every day, and I pray that he would repent. And I was thinking, oh. you know, I think there are a lot wow. of people in our church who pray for Trump every day, but I'm not sure how many of them are praying for Trump to repent. Yes, yes. And so uh, he, um, in the past, you know, my daughter was saying, like, wait, is this the, uh, is this the prayer time or is this the servant? Because he was kind of going on a bit. And mm -hmm. then the pastor went and preached mm -hmm. on, um, righteousness and his wife actually followed up with a very similar sermon last week and you know uh, I, uh, I told him uh, well, first of all I said you know oh, thank you those are a brave thing to do and, yeah, my wife said that too but it, I felt like it was just the right thing to do and that made my ears prick up when people do something because they believe it's right they, uh, so there's two things that will get you into a whole lot of trouble Stephen one is doing what you think is right right <laughs> 
The second, of course, is taking advice from me, because I was the one who suggested that he have a Hispanic friend uh, lead the opening prayer. And so I warned him, uh, by the way, just so you know, people who take Ernie's uh, advice seldom uh, live peaceful lives. <laughs> they may have more inner peace eventually, but the outer peace tends to... Uh... So anyway, um, so he, his, thought, his sermon, I thought that was interesting. And I'm curious your take on it. Well, he said, you know, like racism is bad, it's evil, but it's just a symptom of this larger problem of pride. When we take pride in the wrong things. I think, okay, that's good. And that's probably true. I don't know yet if that is the right answer. Right? So there is something deeper going on. And pride is certainly, and this is the, the, the thing that, um, have you studied systems thinking, this discipline, Peter Singe, any of those things? Uh, to uh, to a certain extent, but not not through Peter Singe's viewpoint. Okay, I, it doesn't I really have, matter. But you're familiar with the you're familiar with the concept. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's I, actually I one of the things I've, the I've never. Yeah, that's another question I've had in some my mind is there's is that. Um, the relationship between constructivist approaches and systems-based approaches. And um, because a system is often like, the complex systems in particular are very didactic. Like in order to understand this complex system, mm-hmm. you have to understand all these pieces yeah. in a very rote way. And um, this is the same with like the great, uh, anyway, tangent. Anyway, uh, but I was reading a wonderful essay, I think from a lady who was working at MIT or consulting there. She talked about how for um, systems thinking, uh, the, the value of systems thinking is if you understand how the system as a whole works, you can identify the point of maximum leverage. Yes. And that if you're trying to solve a problem, you say, okay, if I want to solve this big problem over here, what is the place where I can apply the most efficient impact in order to achieve that result? And the the thing that she said, which, you know, I don't know if it's true in general, but I I can believe it's true, was that usually what you find, what do you think the problem is in getting people to apply the appropriate action at the appropriate point of leverage? Just to guess. Yeah, yes. I get it. What what do you guess? What do you guess makes it hard? Oh, um, correctly. There's multiple points. And then you're trying to optimize which one is going to be most effective. But because you're in a system, Anytime you mess with one little point, all the other rest of the points are going to change as a result. You're hoping for a change in a specific. Right, but organizationally, why do you think it's hard to get people to actually do that? Oh, oh, because people are involved and they're and and they have emotions and they're irrational. Well, here here's the thing that she found. My initial thought was, oh, it's really hard to identify where the true point of leverage is. Yes. Right, because she said, no, that's not the problem at all. The problem is everyone is well aware where the point of maximum leverage is, and they are turning the lever with all their strength in the wrong direction. That's funny. Wow. Right, that was really sobering. It's like, okay, I don't know if that's always true, but I could easily believe that it is uh, often true. And it is terrifying to think that I am probably doing the same thing. Yes. 
with good intention, right? And and with, with, with all intention. sense and rational. Yes, and it's like okay. So the so there's two things that are tricky. One is identifying the point of leverage, and the other is to make sure we're turning it in the right direction because often uh, it is possibly counterintuitive. I mean, the example she gives, which you know I haven't processed enough to know for sure it's true, is that a lot of people say, okay, there's a lot of inequality in the world, and so the answer is growth. And her claim, which I suspect is empirically based, is that actually um, the best way to reduce inequality is to reduce growth, because then the system has a chance to stabilize, where if you're consistently okay. injecting more growth into the system, it actually exacerbates yeah. inequality. Yes, yes. Right, which is, you know, which is heresy under the Aspen consensus, right? It's just sort of a given to the Davoses and the TEDx's of the world that growth is good. Yes. Right. You know, and so um, like, you know, so it's like, okay, you know, so, okay, so that, you know, I'll give her that one. Um, so anyway, and that, you know, changed my thinking too on that, just reading that article. Uh, so anyway, points of leverage. Uh, second thing that happened um, so, uh, uh, was my friend uh, David, who is another ex-Apple guy. Um, he, he's, a, he's a writer. He's a technical writer there and does some writing uh, involved with uh, UC Santa Cruz. And he wrote an essay reflecting on this uh, current situation. And he had two stories. One was his experience as a Northern Californian, or I don't know if he was California at the time, but a Northern white family living in the Deep South for a few years, back when he was much younger, uh, when segregation was still a thing. And, you know, just some of the, mm. the one time that their uh, black maid missed the bus and they drove her home. And the next day oh. she said, you make it back safely? She goes, oh, yeah, you know, are you okay? I was afraid you were going to be punished or something. You seem so anxious. And she goes, I wasn't worried for myself. I was worried for you. Oh. Wow. Right? Is that, mm. you know, because a white person helping a black person in non-traditional ways could end really badly in that time and place. Yes. So that was a sobering thought. The wow. second thing was uh, completely different. He uh, helped open Apple's offices in Russia. Whoa. And he had some wild adventure. stories of what life was like there, including a story where uh, his uh, host, uh, chauffeur, guard, whatever, uh, it was some, I think it was a May Day holiday, and there was some place where his host and his buddy were out drinking. Um, and then two low-level Russian workers uh, saw them and started picking a fight. And it got really ugly. Uh, the, the two commoners were left uh, unconscious or dead. He never found out which. And his friend had a busted leg. So that he himself oh. drove them all the way to Moscow to try and find an open hospital. Uh, where the doctors were apparently at least marginally less drunk than the ones in the town they were in, and oh they recovered fine. But like he said, you know, I tell these two stories because it feels like there's a common thread here: uh, the anger, the violence, and but it, it clearly didn't have anything to do with race because these people were the same ethnicity, same language, same right. nationality. But there's some deep anger and pain that gets expressed really in really horrendous ways 
And I think, uh, sorry, so that's like, okay, so that, the sense is like, okay, racism is, racism is a huge problem, but it's part of a much bigger problem. And there is at least the possibility that solutions we take based on a narrow understanding of the problem could actually make the problem worse. Yeah. Right? I think we've talked before about how the Great Society reforms under Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, basically destroyed, you know, the combination of liberal good intentions and arguably conservative uh, racism led to the basically destruction of the black family. Um, and so, you know, there's all these things. And so it's like, okay, if we could actually even just think clearly about the right way forward, that would be um, helpful for us. And it might actually be really helpful for a lot of other people since it's not clear where you would go to get um, thoughtful, spirit-filled answers to these kinds of hard questions. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thesis I, hypothesis I have is that uh, you know the the Marxist language is all about class struggle. Okay, you people are privileged, and you have life easy. We have life hard. Therefore, uh, we need to take over. And I'm coming to the suspicion. Actually, no, it's probably a conviction at this point. Uh, there's a line in I think the Psalms, maybe Proverbs, where it says, "Do not envy the wicked." And I had this conversation with the uh, kind of the Fox News watching um, Bible study leader, who you know, amazing guy. I'm like involved in this. Um, he's also an ex-cop, so he's got many different perspectives on these issues. And yeah. he said, "You know, I don't envy the wicked." I said, "But don't you envy those uh, in, say, the liberal media who have a platform to trumpet their views?" He goes, "Yeah, I guess I do." Right, and hmm. the um, the thing that I have come to, I think we talked about this before, right? Is I feel like you and I are some of the most powerful people on the planet because we actually are in a place where we can actually say what we think. Was anyone who's part of an institution and part of a power oh, structure? Yeah is enormously constrained into what they're even allowed to think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Uh, 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 so, and really, but even deeper than that, uh, it's getting a little philosophical. You ever studied any Hegel? Oh, or, years ago. I was an undergraduate so, and yeah, struggled. Yeah, I just but, know what I get from listening to podcasts. But they talk about the master-slave relationship. Yeah. His, Hegel's argument is that the master, because he never gets desire frustrated, does not develop as an individual. And therefore, the slave who is actually forced to confront his limitations and his powerlessness uh, at least has the opportunity to become a whole human being. And this idea of, hmm. and this is where I think I part most from the Marxists is that I don't look at the rich and the powerful as the villains to be overthrown, because as we've discussed before, once you overthrow a villain, you become them. Yes. But it's almost infantile to be pitied. Oh, interesting. And, right, and that, um, and so there's, there's a, 
it's not a like you guys have been rich and powerful and comfortable and you've had it easy so you've got to suffer more because everyone has to suffer equally or or whatever right because the the worst this is i guess maybe the the, the scary thing is the idea is that well this is you know i can say this to you i'm not sure i can say this publicly on youtube yet um a lot of this is black resentment of white privilege yes because of the picture being painted that that is how they want to live like why can't i live like that and like part of that is entirely legitimate and true it needs to be addressed but there's a danger in that right because it's coming from this marxist worldview it's all about political power and material wealth and it is not clear to me how a child of God should view those things. And maybe that's what we're going to cover uh, this next season on the Great Reset. But it's like, yeah. okay, what exactly are we aspiring towards? And what should we aspire towards? And what do we want to secure for ourselves and our posterity? And if we're not clear on that, we could very well end up pushing the lever in the wrong direction. Yes, I see it. All right, so here's the pitch. I would like to schedule a Zoom call with me, you, and it's kind of like the same thing that Ted did with me for the Great Reset. I'll act as the host, you act as the istuk, the lead dog. And okay. we say, okay, and I'll invite my pastor, I'll invite his descent, the Hispanic brother, my friend David, who wrote the blog post, um, maybe one or two others, I don't know, but, but like the four or five of us find a time where we can meet and we do uh, kind of like we've done the Great Reset, is that you come up with a topic, a question, perspective, whatever, something that'll take you like five minutes to talk through, and then we just react to it and see where we end up. And what do you expect the outcome to be? I expect the outcome to be a, um, a uh, you know, one-hour YouTube video. The outcome, I'm hoping Davis would say, ah, thank you. I have always wondered about these things, but never felt safe to ask that question. And it's so wonderful that people who are willing and even eager to hear my answer even if they disagree with it, I feel so validated and empowered. I'm typing the notes of this idea as, as you're speaking. But basically, it's so what, you felt during, what you felt during the Great Reset, right? Like, I am accepted, I am heard, they value what I have to say, even though I'm half, kind of half embarrassed about my opinions and perspectives. Oh, you are too funny. You have some tremendous insight sometimes that once you reveal them, you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, classic. Um, so here's what, I, here's what I wrote. So, so part of the outcome is, is, is it isn't just to have a conversation, but rather to create a space in which um, varying viewpoints can be shared. So it, it's, a, it's an enlightening context where each of mm -hmm. us could be transformed by what we hear from the others and we have room to share something that might be considered controversial we could ask questions 
but it would be done in, in, a, in, a, in an environment of relative and mutual uh, safety and respect. Mm -hmm. we, are looking, we are looking towards good listening, good input that's, con that's constructive to um, the topic that, that is being addressed. Um, there isn't a specific outcome, but there's a general outcome of feeling, um, uh, an, uh, feeling that you've had an opportunity to speak, to be heard, and to learn. Right, and the, the objective is to model how the body of Christ should grapple with the question of systemic racism. Aha, yeah, yeah okay. And I'm not gonna necessarily promise answers, but that is the topic. I think starting from there, and like including the question of is systemic racism even the best way to define the problem, but that's something we have to grapple with. Yes. Um, if the group is sufficiently diverse, um, that would give greater credibility in the voice to, to the collective conversation. Um, for, for example, if there is no African-American representative in the conversation, and, and it can't yeah. be me because I, I, I fall into a unique category, um, yeah. then, then, then we're, missing, we're missing the point. So, right. Would that brother the, you mentioned from the, your church be a possible participant? Oh, this is very interesting because just a few minutes ago, I'm walking with this brother I told you about, and we looked at each other and we said, there's only two African-Americans in the church and you don't look like one. And the other guy doesn't show up regularly enough to be a significant part of the, of the body. My, my church still confuses people from Africa as having an African-American perspective. They, they don't right. understand there's a difference. So no, yeah. there, there, so, so from my church, no, there isn't, there isn't someone. Um, I have, this I brother, have friends. So, so yeah. we'll, we'll, how about this brother that you have the conversation? Is he a possible candidate oh, he, for this conversation? Uh, he could be, but you have to recognize that he's mixed race, uh, Filipino and Portuguese. Ah. He, he also has, he also was gay. He is now married to a white woman and they have two children, and they do an international ministry in downtown San Jose. Wow, massively intersectional. <laughs> yes, and he actually, he, he watched one of our videos and he said, I recognize that guy with no hair. I said, Ted? Yeah, Ted's all over the place in San Jose. Yeah, I'm sure Ted would be happy to jump so, in on this, although I don't wanna commit him ahead of time, because I know he's got other right. things going on. But so that, so we can also make that a flea, right? Is that, yes. uh, so, and the one thing I think I do want to do just for my own sanity is keep this as a men's group. Like yeah. there's several African and women, women, uh, but I just, my own vulnerability, I really have no idea how to have yeah. a conversation about this with a woman. Yes, I understood. Um, I perceive yeah. that to be true from the very beginning. And there is a good basis for keeping it the way that, that you are suggesting. Uh, the, the issue of gender adds a whole nother dimension that we would not be adequate, adequately prepared to um, handle. Right. And also, I think even Without, this whole thing about public vulnerability on YouTube, like I'm comfortable yes. asking men to do that. I don't yet yes. know a way to to honorably do that for women. Someday somebody may figure that out. But uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. 
um, I could tell you that it, it won't happen until until a woman is already actively involved in what we are doing. But then that changes the whole nature of of, of what, what right. this yeah. accountability so, you know, is about. If a woman says, "I want to be part of this," then we will deal with that crisis when it comes and figure out the right way to do with it. Because it takes someone fairly um, brave and visionary to pull that off. So anyway, one one impossible yes. task at a time. Yes. And then, thank you. Uh, so I guess the the question then is that. You know, we have uh, sort of adjacent African Americans like yourself and your friend, and yeah, so I guess it's kind I of your call. Is that enough to start with, or can you? So I'm trying to think. Um, actually, I do have a friend. Now that I think about it, um, who um, is a professor in Kansas, uh, Andrew Williams. He helped me with my startup. Great Christian brother. Uh, okay. Also did some work with us at Apple back in the time. And uh, I tried to do some stuff with him, and we had horrible video conferencing problems five years ago, maybe with Zoom, that would actually be practical. Um, I could certainly, uh, you know, I've asked him from time to time, and he's sort of been spotty in his, his responses, but I can pitch him and see if he'd be interested in a call like that. And, um, and what was his race, so by the way? He, yeah, he's he's traditional African American, taught in a uh, you know uh, taught in a black college. Oh, okay. Wrote a biography about growing up. Okay. So anyway, um, so, so you have a friend in mind. I have a friend in mind. Yeah, we'll just start some chat circles and see uh, how God opens the door. So so this is actually now we're talking about the idea that initiated this this uh, phone conversation in the first place through um, you had invited me to think about the possibility of what this would be and this is it. Yep, this is it. Um, so, uh, so, okay, I get it. Originally, I was thinking that there already was someone that you wanted to have a conversation with and he was like a pastor in your church or something like that. Well, yeah, and so like those people you were, there, but you I mean, you're the one who made the point it's good to have someone who is actually uh, closely identified with the African American community in order for yeah. the conversation to have more uh, representative diversity. And this is a brother that I've got um, some history with, so that makes it an easier ask. And so, um, and I think maybe at the short term, let's make that our fleece. If we can find someone yeah. who is uh, really the core linchpin. Uh, that God wants to provide for this, then I think that'll really give it much more impact and gravitas. And yeah. we'll see what happens. And if not, we'll uh, go back to the altar and see what God has in mind. Yes. This is a, yeah, this is an interesting. Go ahead. I think it might be worthwhile for me to write up a, a, a blog post, and you have edit privileges there, so you can tweak it, so we can oh, send yes, people yes, a link of rather than. Yeah, uh, yes. rather than trying to spend everything in a chat thread. Exactly. That that would be helpful, yes. All right. Well, oh, I get to best closing line. Happy not quite Independence Day. Oh, oh, oh Ernie, that is so loaded. Man, oh man. <laughs> you you've done it again. You used this one <laughs> little line and suddenly I'm thinking, how do I write this up in Facebook? Oh, this is fantastic. Is it really an Independence Day? Or are we just are we just celebrating the white man's victory over the other white man? 
I mean, come on. White, the, the white or farmer even, over the white imperialist. Or even, is independence really the goal? Oh. All right, I've messed with your brain oh. for enough for one day. I will let you at it. How do you, how do you live with yourself all day? Oh. Knowing you do this to people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the last time my family lives with me, but this is why my dog is so happy. He can't understand anything I say. Yes, he knows it is time for your presence. Yeah. Yes. All right. God bless you, Stephen. Hey, you too, Ernie. It's always good to talk with you. You, hey, you know, with all great. of my jesting. <laughs> like iron sharpening iron. All right. Look for a blog post and a chat thread sometime in the next day or two. Okay, man. Have a wonderful right. day and enjoy enjoy the weekend holiday with your family. All right. You too. God bless you. Bye-bye now. Bye.